Hello! You're listening to Season 1, Episode 4 of the NeuroDescent Podcast. I'm Nick Supsarelu. I'm a neurodivergent scholar, writer, and social theorist. And I'm Molly Friesenberg. I am a nonprofit professional. I uh, work in education and social justice and happen to be married to this guy. In this first season, Molly and I are exploring mental health through an intriguing angle. We're talking about demons, demonic possession, exorcism, and other similar things that are that have been thought to affect our minds. You know, obviously where one goes when one says they're going to do a mental health podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Medieval. Yeah. So the reason, the reason for this topic is that I want to explore a world before psychiatry when people understood the body, the mind, and their possible afflictions differently. And we tend to have an, the idea that people understood the mind not as well in the past, but what I hope to do by digging into this history is to start thinking about how they understood it differently and what possible advantages that might have had. And I'm here to be like you and break my brain on trying to meld those two things together. <laughs> so, so far in our discussion, we've really been focused on uh, Christianity. Uh, in episode two, we discussed Jesus Christ himself. We talked about the portrayal of Jesus as healer or exorcist in the Gospel of Mark. And also in episode three, we talked about Saint Jerome, who was an influential Christian intellectual who lived about 300 or 400 years after Jesus. Um, he was an advocate of asceticism, meaning that he believed in avoiding all indulgences in order to have a closer relationship with God. In this episode, we're gonna continue our exploration of uh, Christianity and the ways in which it has put forth ideas about demons and exorcisms. Um, our character today is named Marjorie Kemp. A woman! Yes. Um, so we're Wait, we get to tell stories about women that aren't just about how like they were asking for it and it's their fault. We do. Sometimes. I, Especially... I got ahead of myself. There's no need to say that that's not what this story is going to be. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Although it's especially more likely when they actually write the stories. Okay, so she wrote this herself. <laughs> so, so she, um, this is her, a book that is attributed to her as the author. Um, but as we'll see in a little bit, authorship is, is a little bit different in medi medieval times. So Marjorie, who is she? She's, she's a woman, and we're also going to call her a Christian mystic. Um, she lived from about... Da, 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 da. She lived from about 1373 A.D. to 1438 A.D. Okay. So this is about a, roughly a thousand years after St. Jerome. I do want to warn our listeners today that our episode will mention sexual violence. And we start talking about women, so... Yep. So if you're not up for hearing us mention that, then feel free to opt out of this episode. We won't talk about it. We won't describe the events in any detail, but it will be part of this episode. This is not the first time that I have read or tried to read the book of Marjorie Kemp. Um, if you'd asked me the first time I read it, if I'd ever spend hours and hours researching it, then I would have told you definitely not. Um, hell no. <laughs> so as you remember, Molly, um, when I was an undergraduate student studying literature, I had to take all of these survey classes of, of literature, and one of them was about medieval and early modern uh, early modern British literature 
and Marjorie Kemp was on the syllabus. Her book was on the syllabus. Man, you're telling me we're about to spend like 45 minutes talking about a book that even like your nerdy English major self <laughs> couldn't get through? Yes. <clears throat> I, I found it really frustrating to read it at the time. One of the parts that was so difficult is that it's written in Middle, middle English, um, which resembles modern English, which resembles our, our contemporary English, but it's really hard to read it if Are you're you not familiar with it. Are you going to make us listen to Middle English quotes today? I am not going to. I've <laughs> translated them so that you don't, have to, you don't have to struggle like I did. <laughs> um, another thing that, that really made the experience really hard was that it wasn't... It, it's, it's really hard to understand Marjorie's book as a contemporary reader, you have to put it, I think, in context. And I'm going to try to put it in context for our listeners so okay. that they have a better appreciation. And um, me, because it's really hard. And you. And and on top of all that, as we will see, Marjorie is very interesting. In her, in her book, Marjorie reports that many people around her simply cannot stand her. Oh, no. And it seems like many readers find themselves sympathizing with the annoyed people around here. I know I did when I read this book. I was like, no, yeah, Marjorie, everybody hates you. Oh, no. <laughs> so not surprisingly, I really hated this book and never thought I'd return to it. And yet... I can see, though, like, that's not not how a lot of neurodivergent stories start. Yeah, you know, that's, that's true. Right, like, everyone, like, hates me. I'm the odd one out. Like, yeah. That doesn't make me want to read more, but if I, like, think about my better self, that probably is a story worth investigating more. Yeah. As an autistic person, I definitely, like, my light bulbs are going off like, ooh, everyone finds her annoying? Hmm. Wonder what's going on there. Um, so, Marjorie. Marjorie. Marjorie was born into a moderate, moderately powerful and wealthy family. Um, she also married a fairly wealthy man named John Kemp. Uh, when she was about 20 years old. Her father served as the mayor of the town they lived in, and she frequently oh. let people know this. Okay. I feel like you undersold the power, but okay, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think the... Mayor's daughter, like, they ruled that damn town, okay. Right, I guess I guess the point is simply that she's not... But she's still a woman. She's not royalty or anything like that. Um, Guessing no one in her town's ever met royalty, though, so, you know. Possibly not. Um, anyway, at, at least during the first 20 years of her life, she's a pretty typical middle-class woman, very fond of exp expensive clothes and fashion and things like that. So as a middle-class English woman in the late medieval period, Kemp could participate in Christian religious institutions around her in a marginal way. Okay. Um, women could not hold positions of power within the church, mm -hmm. and they were not supposed to preach. And yet there were avenues for them to be involved in the church. And one of those ways that they participated was through uh, becoming saints or celebrating saints. Oh, okay. So um, there's already female saints. So there are already female saints by this point. Um, so the church has a formal process for canonizing saints. And a number of saints had already become, or a number of women had already become saints. And these saints, these, these female saints... Because you're dead, you can participate in the church. Okay. <laughs> so the female saints are often uh, called upon in areas of life that have to do specifically with for women. And so this is often, say, pregnancy and childbirth. Let's talk about a, a, one of these female saints. Okay. And 
her name was Saint Margaret the Virgin of Antioch. Margaret and Marjorie. Margaret and Marjorie. It's going to be super confusing. Margaret is the Virgin. Saint or, or Marjorie Kemp Virgin. is not. You just brought in Mary. Oh no. <laughs> Saint Margaret the Virgin of Antioch. Okay. Um, she was born around 289 AD, so that's actually... So, like, a thousand years before Marjorie. Indeed, yeah. She's actually born before, uh, Jerome. Oh. Okay, so she was born in the, the country of Turkey. Um, far away from Marjorie, many years before. You might be wondering, why am I talking about her? Um, but, but I think that she has a special connection. Or, or I think that we can say that Marjorie would have had a special connection to her. So anyway, St. Margaret, the Virgin of Antioch, uh, had, uh, she was, as, was a young woman born to pagan parents, you know, at the time yeah. when Christianity was expanding. She converted to Christianity and pledged to remain a virgin her whole life, but a powerful man asked to marry her and insisted that she renounce her Christianity in the process. Um, this powerful man asked to marry her and insists she renounce her Christianity, but she refuses, and she's tortured as a result. And accounts of her life... I love the choices. You can marry me or be tortured. <laughs> so she, in, in, in the histories of her life, she's celebrated for the way she endures her torture. Um, oh, okay. And, and because she's a, she's a female saint, this torture is often connected to the, the pains of childbirth. And what? She, yeah. Even though she's a virgin, her her torture is going to be somehow conceptually connected to the same kinds of so, tortures that women will go through in childbirth. You, okay. So you get to be a saint because you weren't willing to marry this dude you didn't want to sleep with and marry because you were going to save yourself for Christ. So we'll make you a saint, but we'll still like minimize that to only be about like women's issues so like you get to be a saint but you're still just like the women's saint and women's stuff really is childbirth because that's what men are for did i is that about right i think that's a fair take on it yeah, yeah i think i mean i think that's that's why saint margaret probably gets pigeonholed into this role is because because that was the only place for women to be right all right so according to uh roisin uh, Donahoe, in the time and place Marjorie Kemp lived, so in late medieval England, okay, um, Saint Margaret the Virgin was closely linked to practices around childbirth. Even though Saint Margaret the Virgin was born a thousand years before, many thousands of virgin miles, never had children, and was a virgin who never had children, she's well known in late medieval England as uh, connected to child to to pregnancy and childbirth. Okay. So, according to Donahoe, women who were giving birth would even wear the stories of Margaret attached to their bodies for protection during the dangers of giving birth so that they would, you know, gain the spiritual strength of St. Margaret. Um, so, Donahoe writes, female martyrs represented the pinnacle of medieval Christian womanhood, and they were typically depicted as figures to emulate. St. Margaret's bravery and resolution in the face of torture and demonic foes could have encouraged a woman who hoped to survive the pains of labor, the trauma of childbirth, and the dangers of postpartum infection. The pain which Margaret endures during her first day of torture is graphic, even in comparison to other stories of saint live, saints' lives. 
Margaret's ripped and torn body is characterized by an extreme effusion of blood. However, while she physically experiences pain, Margaret remains stoic throughout her torture. Yeah, so the not-so-subtle message for women giving Suck birth. it up and deal. Yeah, well, suck it up and deal, but perhaps they also gained some kind of comfort okay, from this. Okay, yeah. I, don't know. I mean, empowerment of you can do hard things, kind of, but... Yeah. But the example is it leads to death and you're being tortured because a man wants you and you didn't want the man. Mm-hmm. Okay, moving on. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely see it as potentially problematic in that sense, right? It's it's both potentially a source of comfort, but also a, a, a source of judgment. Oh, God forbid you scream during childbirth. Right, right. Say Margaret would be so disappointed in you. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we know, or how do I know that, that Marjorie Kemp had anything to do with St. Margaret? Um, well, the book tells, or the book of Marjorie Kemp tells us that she had roughly 14 children. Ah! So it's likely that, that sometime she heard the stories of St. Margaret in connection to those pregnancies and childbirths. But also... Um, the church she attended in her hometown was dedicated to St. Margaret. So I'm still on, like... 14 kids? Well, and, like, in a time where they're, like, most closely associating childbirth with, like, slow, torturous, martyrdom death. Yeah. So Marjorie Kemp definitely knew about St. Margaret and probably admired her. And, and so one of the ways that we can think about Marjorie Kemp's book is by noticing that it lays out an argument for her to become a saint. Oh. Right. So, in other words, Marjorie Kemp seems to have wanted to be canonized as a saint, so she wrote a book explaining her good deeds, spiritual transformation, and the relationship she had with Jesus Christ. Interesting. Yet no one has made Marjorie Kemp a saint. Uh, well okay so combined with that and the no one likes me like i'm not getting a very favorable picture yeah this woman thus far let who, me... like is like no one likes me let let me tell you why i should be a saint that i can see where that's a hard sell okay <laughs> so here's here's what historian eleanor yaniga has to say um and she takes a pretty unsympathetic view of marjorie kemp she presents kemp as a saint wannabe <laughs> she writes I am somewhat obsessed with medieval people who are very clearly using their lives to aim for sainthood, but then don't make it. This is a constant feature of medieval Europe and makes sense in the context of an overtly Christian society. <laughs> I'm going to be a rock star, Mom! Yeah, so here's what Yeniger writes. If you are always having saints held up as the ultimate in how humans can be, then odds are a certain section of society is going to emulate that. If that is the case, then there is also going to be a certain section of society that emulates but then doesn't make the grade. Think of it like influencer, influencers. For everyone that manages to snag a diet brand endorsement, there are hundreds that are out here posting selfies that never make the grade. Same thing with saints. And one of those was Marjorie. I'm sorry, I got distracted by thinking about do kids these days like want to be an influencer instead of a basketball player now? Okay, sorry, moving back. Um, that is well, hey, fascinating, hey. and I will say it also, like, in some ways actually does encourage me to be a little more sympathetic towards Marjorie, because, like, to me, the idea that, like, you're setting yourself up to be a saint is, like, 
the epitome of like I don't know being really into yourself in a way that's mm. like probably really arrogant and ignorant and also like do you did you miss the martyr part like <laughs> I, I it brings a whole new term to a whole new dynamic to martyr complex but um but at the same time like people want to be celebrities so like you know no i don't i don't personally it's never a thing that like anyways yeah well okay. hey we have a podcast and we're trying to get people to want listen to it so <laughs> yeah, it creeps me out a little bit on that one too so yeah based on her book people think of marjorie today as a christian mystic which makes her sound like something really unserious <laughs> she should be wearing a tinfoil hat or something but she's, but you know, the Marjorie and others like her at the time took these beliefs very seriously. Yeah. So she, uh, and we're just using mystic here to mean like kind of generally spiritual and like professing to connect with things that not everyone can connect with, basically. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. The, the word connection, I think, is really important. Marjorie is going to have connections that. Are unique to her. You make it really hard to want to like this woman the way you set up that moment. Oh wow, like, I, didn't, I didn't mean for that, but but they are. They are. You know, she is going to very explicitly say that these are uh, unique experiences that she has. She has a very special relationship with Jesus Christ, which is why she should be a saint. Which is why she should be a saint. All right, so let's talk about the book. Let's talk about the book of Marjorie Kemp. We, one way we can think about this book is by thinking about it as an argument for Marjorie mm -hmm. to be a saint. So, in addition to being that, it's also a story intended to inspire and inform other people about how to live a life of devotion to Jesus Christ. Self-help book. Yeah. So, at the beginning of the book, the writer explains that Marjorie Kemp did not write the book herself. Okay. Rather, she dictated it to a scribe. Oh. So we have, like, an initial mansplaining, like, problem right here from the top of whatever we know about this story. To some extent, definitely. Like, the book, the book claims that the scribe wrote exactly what Marjorie told, told him, but, you know, we don't really know. I've seen you write exactly what I told you. <laughs> uh, no. No. So I'm like we're driving in the car, I'm like, can you send this text message? Man, that's just it's hard. No, there's no way this book is exactly what Marjorie told him. <laughs> so allegedly she could not write or read herself, but we see in the book that she's quite familiar with many other books and stories. You know, she she refers to Saint Jerome and other Christian intellectuals as well. So possibly she is just rich enough for everyone to read and write for her, and possibly we can't let this the saint committee know that she can actually read. Exactly. We can't let the saint committee and all of the people who want to burn her as a witch know that she can read and write. Well, that's obviously a burnable offense. So. Definitely. <laughs> so, interestingly, the book is actually written in third person from the scribe's perspective. Okay. And the scribe call, refers to Marjorie as this creature. No! Yes, he, does, he calls her this no! creature throughout the book, yeah. <laughs> so 
Okay, so assuming she's not just like trying to pull a big con and, and tell everyone that she's writing it and therefore calling herself this creature. Like, talk about doubling down on the everyone doesn't like me, like, storyline. Yeah. Like, this dude is literally getting paid to write her story and he calls her this creature. Yeah. Wow. So, the first chapter of Marjorie's Marjorie Kemp's book begins with a turning point in her life. As, as explained by a dude. As explained by a dude. At about age 20, she's married to John Kemp and quickly becomes pregnant. And it seems that she has a very difficult childbirth and pregnancy. Um, and it causes her to become concerned about her life, whether she's actually going to survive childbirth. And so she reaches out to a Not priest. Not time when you went Margaret is the person you're holding up. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Death and all. <laughs> so she reaches out to a priest to confess this secret sin that she has never confessed. And the book doesn't even tell us what the, what the sin is. Um, she just has never confessed it and it's weighing on her. Um, and she suggests that she hasn't yet confessed it because she was influenced and betrayed by devils and demons at this point in her life. You know, her early life, she was giving into what the demons told her. So she calls for a member of the clergy to hear her confession, but he's really quick with his condemnation of her. And before she even tells him what she did, he begins lecturing her and this makes her upset. So she describes that she, she has this. Insert your own really negative like experience with a religious official here. <laughs> or, or, hey, or a therapist, right? Oh, good point. Ow. No, that's so terrible. There's something like, you finally like, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go to the therapist. And the therapist is like, here's what you're just like doing wrong, obviously, dumbass. Like, yeah, definitely. That would be horrible. So Marjorie describes having an episode that lasts eight months. And it's brought on according to her, by, on the one hand, her fear of being damned to hell, and on the other hand, this man's sharp criticism of her. And for many audiences, we we probably are starting to suspect that she might have had something to do with like postpartum depression or, or some other postpartum psychiatric condition. Um, I want to read, however, what Marjorie herself says about her affliction. So here's my... You mean the creature. The, yes, here's the creature's uh, description. Okay. By a man. I'm gonna, I'm, this is translated by me. By two men. By two... Yes. <laughs> Due to the fear she had, on the one hand of damnation, and on the other hand of the priest's disapproval, this creature went out of her mind and was wondrously vexed and labored with spirits for eight months. And in this time, she saw in her mind devils open their mouths and reveal burning flames, hoping to swallow her in. Sometimes they intimidated her. Sometimes they threatened her. Sometimes they pulled her and hailed her both night and day. Man, makes you wish for a good didn't finish high school dream. And also the devils threatened Marjorie and told her she should forsake her Christianity, her faith, and deny her God, his mother, and all the saints in heaven, her good works and all good virtues, her father, her mother, and all her friends. And so she did. She forsook all of them. She slandered her husband, her friends, and herself. She spoke many a critical word and many a shrewd word. She knew no virtue, no goodness. She desired all wickedness. She did and said as the spirits tempted her. She wanted to kill herself many times, and she would have been damned with the devils in hell. As witness of her agony, 
She bit herself on the hand so violently that the marks were visible all her life. She grievously tore the skin on her chest with her fingernails because she had no other instruments. She would have done worse if it had not been guarded and monitored both day and night so that she wouldn't do it. But this is all after her first kid? Yeah, this is all, you know, during that eight-month period after her she's had her first child. Wow. She needed more than a book of Margaret. Yeah, for sure. Like, I mean... I, yeah, I mean, just, I I feel like there's no way of underplaying here to, like, how much today we would have, like, viewed that as, like, postpartum, like, psychosis. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah, and some of the things we see in here are she's, she's having, you know, kind of aggressive behavior towards other people. Um, she's... And self-harming self and suicidal. Um... You know, she's in, she's apparently doing things, too, that she, she doesn't really like, right? She's saying she, um, she didn't said as the spirits tempted her. Yeah. Which, I mean, it sounds a lot like cursing her husband is basically the, and everybody she knows. Like, I, that might be another part of the, no one likes me, sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Slam she says she slandered her husband, her friends, and herself. Yeah, although I'm guessing that was pretty much just in like in the room to the nurse. That doesn't sound like the guy she was allowed to go out much during this time period. That's true. So Marjorie has a turning point when for the first time she's visited by the spirit of Jesus Christ. Okay. So she has her first mystic experience. And uh I read an author named Denise Trull who points out that Jesus appeared to Marjorie in a way that seems custom-tailored for Marjorie. So we know that she's a middle-class woman, and we know that up to this point she's kind of into fashion and fancy clothes. Um, and she hasn't really, at this point, shown any signs of being religiously devout. Mm -hmm. Charles says that, that Marjorie uh, heard Jesus asking her, Daughter, why have you forsaken me when I have never forsaken you? And here's what Trull says about that. Marjorie's heart weeps at this tender chiding, but she feels calm descend and her wits return. This truly was a mystic vision, but it was not at all like other mystic writers' visions. This was a beautiful, gentle-voiced man, clothed in a way that Marjorie would admire and remember, in a purple silk tunic. He did not stand far apart from her, but sat most familiarly on her bed while holding her trembling hands in his. This was God taking on the ways of men. He came to Marjorie in the way Marjorie most needed and desired, and he said something quite astonishing, that he had always been there, even if she had not, and he had waited anxiously for her return. Um, so her first experience with Jesus Christ seems to put to pull Marjorie out of her affliction, and she returns to a more normal routine and behavior. Um, but she's still, she's still concerned uh that she's behaving in the wrong ways. She's still struggling to understand her new mystical experiences. So in the third chapter, while she's laying in bed with her husband, she has another mystical experience, and this time she hears a sound of melody so sweet and delectable that she thought she was in paradise. And this experience once again transforms her. She's now communicating with Jesus and the saints quite frequently, she has a lot of emotional reactions, and, and in particular, she cries a lot. And she also 
Uh, and, and it's at this point that I should also remind our listeners that we are going to mention sexual violence. Um, so if this is something you want to opt out of hearing, uh, go ahead and take that opportunity right now. Anyway, after her second mystical experience, Marjorie no longer wants to have sex with her husband. I'm sure that was respected immediately. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, so here's here's my translation of what she's uh, of what she's feeling. So after this time, she never had the desire to have sexual intercourse with her husband because the debt of matrimony was so abominable to her that she would rather eat and drink the ooze, the muck of the channel, than to consent to any fleshly communing, except only out of obedience. And so she told her husband, I may not deny you my body, but the love of my heart and my affection is withdrawn from all earthly creatures and set only in God. Her husband still wanted to have his way, and so she obeyed with great weeping and sorrow because she could not live a chaste life. Oh my God. Yeah, so... So that's, um, that's quite the description of marital rape. Yeah. I mean, um, here's what scholar of English literature Emily Macklemore explains about it. Following the spiritual revolution that sparks her mysticism, Marjorie renounces sexual activity. She commits herself to chastity and begs her husband to live chastely with her. That is, allow her to abstain from sex, to not force her to have sex with him. He refuses. For years, Marjorie endures marital rape. And, um, and 13 more children. And 13 more children after saying that she didn't want to have sex anymore. And that's, that's a really, I think, key point to understand about Marjorie's uh, situation and Marjorie's tale. And in fact, it, it wasn't until I read Emily McLemore's article that I really picked up on that myself. And here's, and, and McLemore says, uh, about her own experience, she writes, the rather arduous experience of reading her book had engendered more impatience than sympathy, but I had failed to really feel the extent of her suffering, and for that I feel deeply guilty. So that's what Macklemore had to say about how she first read the book um, and didn't understand that, that this is what Marjorie is going through. Well, yeah, again, going from that, like, whiny everyone hates me character to, like, actually thinking about that experience mm -hmm. and I'm sure an experience that's been shared by many. Definitely. So, so this has a lot of effects on, on Marjorie, right? She's enduring marital rape it, and, and that marital rape is causing her to feel differently about herself too, right? Because she sees herself right through this lens of, uh, of the kinds of teachings that we talked about with St. Jerome, where sex is unclean. Yeah. Right? So, if you remember from episode three, St. Jerome argued strenuously that all sex is unclean and virgins are thus more pure than wives who have had sex with their husbands. So that kind of judgmental idea is, is definitely yeah. part of the, Saint the Jerome. torture that, that Marjorie is Still enduring. messing with people's lives. 1,000 to 2,000 years later. So given given this this difficulty that, that Marjorie faces of on the one hand she doesn't want to have sex, but on the other hand she's her husband's property and thus doesn't have a choice. 
And on the third hand, her greatest aspiration in life is to get to be sainted like Jerome. Yeah. So, so it, it kind of makes us wonder how is she going to deal with this, you know, contradictory stuff. So there is a part in the book where she wrestles with these questions. And um, I'm going to read my translation of, of this part. And, uh, in it, she, she confronts Jesus um, about the attention that, that he gives to her. So he, she has this very special relationship with Jesus Christ. But Marjorie thinks, yeah, but I've had sex. I'm not a virgin. Why is he giving me all this attention? So here's what, the, what she says. Lord Jesus, this manner of love belongs to your holy maidens, virgins. Daughter, you know very well that I love wives also, and especially the wives that want to live chastely, if they might have their will, and do their best to please me as you do. Since, although the state of virginity is more perfect and more holy than the state of womanhood, of widowhood, and the state of widowhood more perfect than the state of wedlock, yet, daughter, I love you as much as any virgin in the world. There's no man that can hinder me from loving who I want and as much as I want, because love, daughter, quenches all sins, and therefore ask of me the gifts of love. She's such a way of combining, like, what I think of as the more, like, truer messages of God or Jesus or whatever in the sense of, like, love, right? Yeah. And, like, not judging, but, mm -hmm. like, still acknowledging the douchery of St. Jerome. Yeah, I, Like, I it's agree. a fascinating combination of, like, I acknowledge what, like, society is telling me about, like, this religion of, like, not of chastity, etc.'s importance while also having the, actually, this was about not judging and loving people. Jesus yeah. part. Yeah, I think we see both the, we see remnants, both of the things we talked about in episode two with the Gospel yeah. of Mark, and, and we see also Jerome's yeah. or, or other... It, Although, you know what was less complicated and we didn't have to kind of half-hate ourselves? He slept. <laughs> you mean the Asclepian temples? Yeah. <laughs> Once again, please let me just go to the spa about it and not have to just be like, I'll be loved even if I have marital rape because I wanted to be chaste. <laughs> but also I would have been loved either way, which, you know, that's cool and all, but... But we also still somehow have this hierarchy of women. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting contradiction. I'm just going to say, if I'm choosing my health care, whatever, I'm still still sticking with hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, yeah. So, um, one of the... So, so, another change that happens to Marjorie after she starts having her mystical experiences is that she begins having crying fits a lot. So Marjorie is, uh, one of the stories uh, that talks about her crying takes place in Jerusalem. She's there on a pilgrimage, and she has a mystical experience uh, near the place where Jesus was crucified, in which she witnesses the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And she's Anyone also... Anyone would cry seeing that. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty horrible thing to think about, even. Um, and she is also visited by Jesus Christ's mother, Mary, um, and she comforts Mary during this time. So this experience causes Marjorie's crying to like go to a new level. Here, here's what it says in chapter 28 of the book of Marjorie Kemp. 
Before her face, she heard and saw in her spiritual vision the morning of Our Lady, Mary, of St. John and Mary Magdalene and of many others that loved our Lord. She had so great compassion and so great pain to see our Lord in pain that she couldn't keep herself from crying and yelling, even if it killed her. And this was the first cry that ever she cried in any contemplation. And this manner of crying endured many years after this time. So it goes on to explain how she experiences vicarious pain and crying in a variety of different circumstances. Some of these circumstances are like overtly religious and about Jesus Christ, and some of them are not. They're just everyday occurrences. So here's my translation. And sometimes when she saw the crucifix, or if she saw a man or a beast was wounded, or if she saw or heard a man beat a child or a horse or other beast with a whip, then she would think that she saw our Lord being beaten or wounded. It happened whether she was in a field or in a town, or if she was alone or among the people. Don't mind me knocking over my coffee mug. <laughs> so, so when these experiences would, would occur, she would attempt not to cry, according to the book. Um, so here's what it says. And as soon as she perceived that she might cry, she would try to keep it in as much as she could so that the people would not hear it and be annoyed. Because some people said it was a wicked spirit that vexed her. Some said it was a disease. Some said she had drunk too much wine. Some banned her, some wished she were at the bottom of the harbor, and some wished that she had been out to sea in a bottomless boat. When her body could no longer endure the spiritual labor, but was overcome with the unspeakable love that existed so fervently in her soul, then she fell down and cried wondrously loud. And the more that she would labor to keep it in, the longer and the louder she would cry. All right, so everyone else is like, um, hello, this is my wedding, would you shut up already? And she's like, yeah, I'm witnessing murderous torture yeah. all the time. Yeah, I mean, like, think about it this way. You go to a... Unintended consequences of holding up martyrdom with sainthood. <laughs> you, go to, you go to church to see a wedding, perhaps, but up on the wall is a crucifix with a very lifelike Jesus hanging there, and you, have, you experience vicarious pain as a result, and perhaps you also... Let you out know some crime. what I think would be really helpful for Marjorie? What? A weekend in a sloppy attempt. And <laughs> <laughs> um, they don't have any murder depictions in there. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, so this is, for me, this is the part that makes me really start uh, relating to Marjorie in that you can see the kind of struggle she's having between her inner emotions, her inner world, and her inability to keep it inside and the way that society is judging her for that. Yeah. And as an autistic person, that really rings true for me. Like yeah. if I have like a sensory overload or something, um, it, you know, I may, I might be compelled to react in some way, but society is going to judge me for it. Yeah. And, you know, wish you're under the sea and wish, wish me in a bottomless boat. <laughs> out to sea That's rough. it is really rough isn't it so all right so the the thing that i really want us to focus on now for the rest of our discussion is um the way in which marjorie continues to have lingering doubts about her mystical experiences so i mean yeah so you know she's 
she's getting all of these visions and she's crying and and other people are telling her that i mean generally anytime you're experiencing something no one else around you is yeah gonna have a lot of doubt here's what the narrator at the beginning of the book says once again the guy who decided to call her this creature just <laughs> just to remind everyone so he talks about her her fears of being possessed by demons this creature, Marjorie, was very afraid of illusions and deceits from her ghostly enemies. So she went at the suggestion of the Holy Spirit to many holy clerks, both archbishops and bishops, doctors of divinity also. She spoke also with many anchoresses and showed them her manner of living and such grace as the Holy Spirit of his goodness created in her mind and in her soul. And all of them that she showed her secrets to said she should love our God for the grace that he showed her. And they counseled her to follow her movings and stirrings and truly believe that it is the Holy Spirit and not an evil spirit. Wow. So this is almost like her seeking out kind of healthcare, right? Or like mm -hmm. would have been like going to the therapist. Like yeah. she keeps trying to find like the best, most relevant, like, I mean, I think you even said going to Jerusalem, like mm -hmm. that's, that's a lot of traveling for a medieval person. Um, and they keep telling her, like, no, you are godly. Lean in. Most and of everyone's them, yeah. like, I hate you. Let's put you out to sea. Yeah. For so leaning in. So there's there's a there's definitely a struggle here, right? That she has she has the support of some people and she also seems to be really angering other people. Yeah. Throughout the book, there are scenes where Marjorie goes to uh, a religious man or woman and talks to them about the possibility that she's possessed by demons. And so she travels around telling various people about what she's experienced. And part of what this does is to tell readers that Marjorie's experiences are endorsed by influential people, mm. right? <laughs> part this is also partly the Oscar campaign of like, yeah. look, these other people you're probably considering for sainthood think I'm real. Exactly, yes. <laughs> People are complicated. Um, <laughs> but, but, so that's one way of thinking about it. But I think we should also attempt to notice that she's looking for someone to yeah. help her understand her, her spiritual experiences, her, her mystical experiences. Yeah, like we said, that's that almost like seeking healthcare kind of. Mm -hmm. So this is the first time, I'm going to read to you the part of chapter five, which is the first time that Marjorie goes out and talks to a religious figure. Um, in this case, Jesus tells Marjorie to go talk to an anchorite at a Dominican parish. And an anchorite is a religious recluse who okay. lives usually like attached in a room attached to a church and never comes out. So Jesus tells Marjorie to tell the anchorite about what she's seen in her visions. Here's my translation. Then this creature, Marjorie, went forth to the anchorite as she was commanded and showed him the revelations such as were shown to her. Then the anchorite with great reverence and weeping, thanking God said, daughter, I implore you to receive such thoughts when God wants to give them as devoutly as you can and come to me and tell me what they are. And I shall with the love of our Jesus Christ tell you whether they are from the Holy Spirit or else of your enemy, the devil. You know, think about this as a, as a mental health care situation. I mean, 
come back and tell me if you have more. Yeah. And I'll give you the same comfort potentially. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's an open invitation to come discuss these experiences with me. Right. Especially for a hermit. It's a lot. It is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Jesus tells Marjorie again and again to go see these different religious figures. And they, they, that one of the first places that she, he says that she should go is the town of Canterbury, England. Okay. So she's not doing international travel yet. Oh, okay. She's, she is an English woman living in the, the yeah. town of Lynn. In chapter 13, the narrator describes her visit to Canterbury. And he, he explains that Marjorie was greatly despised by the monks, or by some of the monks in Canterbury, because of her crime and her, you know, generally being a woman <laughs> who's saying things when we want her to be quiet. Um, she ends up being confronted by a group of monks, and one of them says to her, either you have the Holy Spirit in you, or you have a demon in you. She, isn't she like, that's like why I came in the first place, was those two options? Like... Kind of, yeah. Although he seems to be a lot more on the demon side than everybody else. <laughs> um, so here's my translation of the confrontation that she has. Then she went out of the monastery. They followed and cried out after her, You will be burned, false, false lollard. Here is a cart full of thorns ready for you and a barrel to burn you with. And the creature stood outside the gates of Canterbury. Since it was evening... I many... she was definitely crying at that point. I would think. Since it was evening, many people wondered at her. Then she, then the people said, Take and burn her! And the creature stood still, trembling and shaking, full sorrow in her flesh without any earthly comfort, and she, she, she knew not where her husband had gone to. Then she prayed in her heart to our Lord, Blessed Lord, help me and have mercy on me. And suddenly, after she had made her prayers, there came twenty fair young men and said to her, Damsel, are you not a heretic or a lollard? And she said, no, sirs, I'm neither heretic nor lollard. <laughs> then they asked her whether, or, or then they asked her where her inn she was staying in was. And so this group of men safely accompanies Marjorie back to her inn. I'm not a lollard, save me. That's right. <laughs> Marjorie is totally vindicated later when she meets the Archbishop of Canterbury, who is definitely on her side and welcomes her gifts, just like the anchorite that uh we talked about in the previous story wow there's so much there yeah like i mean the actual threat of setting you on fire because you're annoying yep from men of power but also the confirmation of men of more power also that you pray and 20 men fair men i heard uh, come to <laughs> save you and also just the term lollard is just really fun so like i mean it's honestly hard not to make little of this like what was like a life or death situation because it sounds hysterical in like my yeah. modern pers perspective but right. like um but also i think that's part of how we underplay people's perceived threat like who are different right yeah. like it's really easy to like kind of laugh it off right as like yeah, they hate you, whatever, like, you're fine, right? And right. not like, yeah, they hate you. They might throw you in the ocean or burn you at the stake. Like, and, it, and like, right. it just, it, it continues to increase that separation of folks who, like, we do, like, kind of write off as everyone hates you because, like, then we're not taking their experience seriously either. And it just... Yeah, I think, I think Marjorie's story really illustrates that kind of spiral. Yeah. Um, very well. Hmm. 
Um, so God, God now tells Marjorie to go to Norwich, which is another city in England, and tells God her... God gives very specific instructions. He does. He tells her to meet with particular people. Um, so one of the people that Marjorie is supposed to meet with in Norwich... <laughs> Sorry, in my head I just went on a whole side note of, like, God is, like, her Oscar campaign marketing director. <laughs> <laughs> or her mental health concierge. Right, man. So, uh, she's supposed to go talk to Julian of Norwich, which is, who was an anchoress, a religious recluse, um, also a writer, um, whose books are also known to scholars nowadays. Interesting. Interesting how many, like, religious recluses there are, when again, like, we learn, like, when we were talking about Jesus, right? He's like, okay, now go back into your community. Like there's that, that in of itself feels like kind of this dichotomy of like being about community and acceptance versus like, yeah, how but, many of these people are operating outside of like regular society and that's Marjorie's problem, right? Is trying to combine like mm. this mysticism and society. Yeah. Yeah. Like she's, she's not like Julian of Norwich who is yeah. also having mystical experiences about if Jesus. If Marjorie's husband would just let her go be a recluse, she'd probably have been okay. Like, so, um, a writer named Cecily Fasham, uh, wrote an article about the relationship between these two women, Marjorie and Julian. And she notes that there, she notes their similarities and differences. Here's what she writes. Kemp and Julian shared some basic characteristics. Both were female English writers, both Christian mystics who believed that they received visions directly from God. Both are from roughly the same late medieval time period. I mean, they were alive at the same time. They even both came to their spiritual awakenings following periods of serious illness. They were, however, quite different. Kemp was a wife and woman about town mother to at least 14 children before convincing her husband to become celibate and decidedly public in her devotional brand, making long pilgrimages around England and all the way to Jerusalem. Julian was an anchoress, a type of religious hermit, living a reclusive spiritual life, walled up with her cat in a cell attached to a church mm. with only a small window through which to receive food and speak to visitors. All right, so here's my translation of Marjorie and Julian's meeting. And so Marjorie did go to Julian, and she showed Julian of Norwich the grace that God put in her soul of compunction, contrition, sweetness, and devotion, compassion with holy meditation and high contemplation, and the full many speeches and dalliances that our Lord spoke to her soul, and many wonderful revelations which she showed to the anchoress to know if they were any to know if there were any deceit in them. Because the anchoress was an expert in such things and could give good advice. The anchoress, Julian, hearing the marvelous goodness of our Lord, highly thanked God with all her heart for his visitation, counseling this creature, Marjorie, to be, to be obedient to the will of our Lord God and fulfill with all her might whatever he put in her soul, if it were not against the worship of God. Because if it were, then it would not be the moving of a good spirit, but rather of an evil spirit. The Holy Spirit never moves a thing against charity, and if he did, he would be contrary to his own self. I just keep coming back to, like, the lose-lose situation we've set up for women, though, right? Because, mm -hmm. like, 
that advice only works if what you feel like, I mean, you know, what she says she's getting straight from Jesus doesn't contradict with the will of her husband, whom the church mm -hmm. has said to follow her husband is to follow Jesus. So, like, again, yeah. I just keep coming back to this, like, lose-lose dichotomy that's been set up that, like, mm -hmm. she cannot, by the rules of the church, be following Jesus in that way. Like, Yeah, that's, that's really true, right? All right, so Julian... Um, stamp of approval. Julian's given her stamp of approval, and she goes on specifically to mention Marjorie's crying and validates her crying with a reference to St. Jerome. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Interestingly, Julian's reference, which I guess is actually Marjorie's reference, but, but this reference to Jer Jerome doesn't seem to come from anything he actually wrote or that we have from him. But rather, it's, it's sort of a common interpretation of his beliefs. So here's my translation of what Julian says about, or says to Marjorie about her crying. Via Marjorie, via the <laughs> right. creature's cry, via your translation. Yeah, lots Got of, we got a game of telephone going on here. When God visits a creature with tears of contrition, devotion, or compassion, he may and should believe that the Holy Spirit is in his soul, or her soul, St. Paul says that the Holy Spirit asks for us with unspeakable mourning and weeping. That is to say that he expects us to ask and pray with mourning and weeping so plentiful that the tears cannot be numbered. No evil spirit can give these things because Jerome says that tears torment the devil more than the pains of hell. Interesting. All right, so later in the book, in chapter 41, Marjorie visits Rome on a pilgrimage. Ooh. Traveling afar. Yeah, she goes all over the place. And she visits the church where St. Jerome was buried. And in that church, she's visited by the spirit of St. Jerome. No! Yes. Ugh, okay. All right, what do you think that St. Jerome would say to Marjorie Camp? Uh, the real St. Jerome that we read of, I yeah. think, would be like, well, yeah, of course you're crying because you are not a virgin. Sucks to be you. I will say, um, she seems to have much kinder visions to these historical figures than I expect. So yeah. what did she think? So here's what, here's how Jerome speaks in the book of Marjorie. Here's my translation. One time when this creature, Marjorie, was at a church in Rome where St. Jerome was laid to rest, St. Jerome appeared to her spiritual vision and he said to her soul, you're blessed, daughter, with this crying and you cry for the people's sins. So many will be saved because of it. And daughter, do not fear, because it is a singular and a special gift that God has given you, a well of tears that no man can ever take from you. With such manner of dalliances, he might he highly comforted her spirits. I mean, I do get your, your theme of, you know, the good Christians are not happy. Hmm. But at least St. Jerome told her she's okay, so she just needs to keep that cry in life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's all I'm going to tell us about the Book of Marjorie Kemp. Like, uh -huh. I want to wrap up now um, by by thinking about what this book tells us. Uh -huh. And and I think, like what you're saying, I think we get a really interesting view of one medieval woman's spiritual and mental struggles. And she Marjorie tells us quite a bit about how she understood her own mind and the forces that threatened it. And there are two very clear threats. There's this what we might call supernatural threat from 
ideas, desires, and thoughts that are attributed to demons, mm -hmm. to the devil. And then on the other side, there's this social threat that's connected to the supernatural threat, sort of. But um, but it's there whether or not the supernatural is a threat or positive, right? Like yeah. having that experience, like it's a separate thing. For yeah, sure, yeah, like whether this one's good or negative, like you get the social threat the same. And, and one of the things that I'm I'm really super interested about in the book is is the way in which she finds this great comfort in telling her experiences and struggles to these other like-minded religious individuals. Mm -hmm. So she has Julian of Norwich, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and even the spirit of St. Jerome, um, who listen to her and affirm what she's saying, provide her validation. Um, so that, that seems like, to me, a kind of trauma support. Yeah, well, and to, your, to kind of come back to this theme of whether or not we, like, listen to people experiencing madness, right? Right. Like, it's interesting dichotomy, because I think a lot of the social threat comes from, like, absolutely not being listened to. Mm -hmm. And yet, there's all these examples of who she's being listened to, and they have what we would think of as, as power. Like, they, are, in a lot of ways, are, like, authoritarian kind of figures mm -hmm. so what you're saying you know it definitely brings you're bringing back up michel foucault mm -hmm. and his ideas about the monologue of psychiatry and how we don't really take seriously the things that mad people say but perhaps we did at one time yeah and yeah i think marjorie kemp at least with some of these people really do does show an example of um people who are much more willing to listen to the things that people some people dismiss as mad. Yeah, and inviting them to keep coming back and sharing yep. them and, and keep discussing them. Right. So that that in that way, that sort of sense of wonder that they are, that Julian of Norwich is extending to Marjorie seems comforting. Foucault's point for me is really highlighted here nicely by Marjorie's visits to people like Julian of Norwich. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, that's all I've got to say about Marjorie Kemp. Um, well. Sounds like she had a lot of demons to deal with. It does, it does. Um, and I I honestly, I'm still, jury's still out on what I want to take away from this. Like, it's... <laughs> it's complicated. Yeah, it's complicated. All right, well, thanks for listening. Yeah, so thank you for listening. And we just want to remind you to go ahead and check out our website. Because, uh, you know, he's got all of them resources. I there. do. So we referred to a number of sources Today, you can go and read all of those because they're open access, and I have them listed on my website, nsuptarelu.com, or you can Google NeuroDescent. And, uh, my find... thoughts have no resources, so feel free to tell me what I made up completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, you can uh, find a, an email address for us and contact us and send us things. You can also subscribe to our podcast on a number of different platforms, so we hope you check that out. Until next time, when we talk about uh, demons in an entirely different tradition, we're going to go over to East Asia. Until next time. Bye.